Let's get to the message. Y'all ready for this? Y'all ready for this? Don't, don't, don't. Uh, where are we? Second Samuel chapter number 11. Come on, somebody. <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel a little something, something coming on. I feel a little, I'm sweating like Bishop Jake's too. Woo! Come on, somebody. Y'all know how Bishop you? Get ready, 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 get ready. I feel it coming on. All right, so here it is, here it is. Second Samuel, chapter number 11, beginning at verse 1. Here's that phrase again. The whole time we've been in this series, this phrase keeps popping up. It happened. <laughs> Remember, life is often filled with interruptions. Uh, and, and so it happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to war, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. Woo! But David remained at Jerusalem. Notice what the text says. It was the spring in the time that kings go to war, in the time that kings go to battle. And guess what David did? He remained at Jerusalem. Most of the pain that we experience that is self-inflicted begins with something called complacency. When you and I become indifferent to the things that matter. David is supposed to be leading his nation. David is supposed to be leading his fighting men in battle. And in the season of war, he decided to stay home. In the season of conflict, he decided to take a Sabbath. And I wonder how many of us have taken a Sabbath from life when the battle is raging all around us. Because there's a domino effect to complacency. It just doesn't end with my indifference to the things that God has called me to do. There is a ripple effect to our complacency. Because if we're not where we're supposed to be, doing what we're supposed to do, it ultimately determines what we're exposed to. Listen, David was in Jerusalem when he should have been on the front lines. And notice what happens in verse 2. His complacency leads to the next thing, which we'll discover here in verse 2. Oh, here it is again. <laughs> then it happened when he least expected it. Notice what the scripture says. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and he was walking on the roof of the palace. And as he looked over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Come on, somebody. Somebody say, wrong place, wrong time. Would any of this have happened if David was doing what he should have been doing? Would any of this have happened if David was where he should have been? No. But his complacency exposes him now to this moment. Let me say this to you. Where you are, where you are, 
determines what you see. What you see determines what you desire. What you desire determines what you pursue. And what you pursue determines what you will have, good or bad. I'll say that again. Where you are determines what you see. I'll say it even a different way. Where you are is not just limited to your physical geographical location. Because David could have been in Jerusalem, standing on the rooftop, watching Bathsheba, a woman of unusual beauty, bathing. And if he was in the right place spiritually, he would have turned and looked away. It wasn't just because of where he stood physically. It was ultimately because of where his heart was. Because your complacency will determine the next step, which is your contemplation. Your complacency will determine what you begin to consider. It will determine what you begin to entertain. At a time in David's life when normally he would have run away from that circumstance into the arms of God, now David just chilling, taking it all in. He goes from being a man after God's own heart to becoming a voyeur. Are y'all listening to me this morning? Where you are determines what you see. It determines how you see. What David saw was a woman that he could have because of where he was. But he was in the wrong place spiritually. And it informed what he thought he could have because if he had been on the battlefield, he had, would have been conquering the enemy instead of trying to conquer Bathsheba. I'm talking to somebody this morning. Your complacency toward the things that matter are putting you in a place of contemplation where you are considering and entertaining the right things and you think it's okay. But the reason you are is because you've become complacent. In the time when kings go to war, you're chilling in the palace. Now let me tell you what comes after the contemplation. Because your life and my life will always move in the direction of our most dominant thought. If you think about it long enough, the next thing that happens is the compromise. Complacency will lead to contemplation, which leads to compromise. Notice verses 3 and 4. I want everybody to hear this now. I ain't only talking about this in terms of a man lusting after a woman. I'm talking about this in the totality of your life. What areas in my life have I grown complacent? What are some of the things I'm now beginning to consider and contemplate and entertain as a result of my complacency? And what areas of my life am I now beginning to compromise? This ain't just about a man and a woman. It's in every area of your life. So here comes the compromise. Glory to God. Woo! Are y'all with me? Verses 3 and 4. <laughs> he sent someone to find out who she was. Who's that lady? Come on, somebody. Y'all like that falsetto? I hit that, though. You see that, Pastor Casey? I hit that. He sent them out and said, who, who that lady? Now, let me, let me tell you something now. <clears throat> if you ain't right, you're going to bring other people into your mess. 
He has grown complacent. He is now considering the wrong things. But now there are people who have absolutely nothing to do with his struggle who are now pulled into the situation. Go find out who she is. So, so, so they sent him. Norm, I mean, naturally, that's the king. So, so the king goes, and, and, and notice, uh, uh, oh, it said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Pump the brakes right there. Uriah the Hittite? Hold up. That's my boy's wife? Because Uriah is one of his 36 mighty men. Uriah is one of the guys on his, in his inner circle. That's one of his dudes. That's one of the guys who says, look, uh, uh, I'll take a bullet for you, David. And they came back and told him, she's untouchable. Number one, she married. That's what we say in the South, right? Married. She married. Not only is she married, she married to your boy. Fellas, y'all know there's an unspoken rule, right? Come on, somebody. Do I need to say more? But you can't do that. David is so messed up now. David is so messed up that even though they came back and told him, man, don't touch her. Notice what David did. Said David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Now, it's one thing to creep, but there's a whole nother level of creeping when you don't care who knows. It's one thing for David to say, I saw Bathsheba and I put on a cloak and I put on a hat and dark glasses and knock on her door and went to her house. It's a whole nother level of foolishness and mayhem. When you send somebody to get somebody that they already told you, you can't have. And this is the extent to which David is toxic. I'm going somewhere with this now. I'm talking about dealing with guilt and the stuff we bring into our lives that is the result of our own doing. Nobody did that to David. David did it himself. Are y'all seeing this? But there's a progression to how you get here. Now, the problem with all of this is um, now that he slept with her, the fourth thing had to happen. And that's the cover-up. My mind. Now that you did it, now that you compromise, you got to cover it up. Let me tell you sometimes the problem with the cover-up. <laughs> the cover-up sometimes is more lethal than the crime. <laughs> the cover-up sometimes is more fatal, more lethal than the crime. Because up until this point, ain't nobody died yet. But the cover-up 
is about to take this thing to a whole nother level of escalation. Uh, man, I don't have time to read the whole story. Look at verse, verses 6 through 15. Let me read 6 through 15 to you. Verses 6 through 15, this is the cover-up. Uh, then David sent to Joab. In fact, yeah, that's where I want to start. David sent to Joab, and he said, uh, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Uriah's on the front lines. Joab is the commander, and David sends word to Joab, and Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing. David, <laughs> ah, this is like an episode of power. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Right? David is like, hey, man, how, how are things going, man? How, how Joab doing? All the while, David knows exactly what he's up to and what he's about to do. But he's making small talk with, with Uriah. And David asked how Joab was doing and how the people are doing and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a, and, a, and a gift of food from the king followed him. David, dirty man. Said, man, go home and shower, bro. You've been fighting. Go home to your wife and family. And before Joab could get there, man, David already had edible arrangements and tiff treats lined up. With balloons saying, welcome back. All of that. But David is, he's jacked up. Because now he got to cover up what he did. The problem with covering up what you did is that you sent messengers to do your bidding. Okay. Uh, so, so notice how messed up David is now. Listen to what it said. But do you, you see, David didn't plan for this part. It says, but Uriah didn't go home. He slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go to his own house. Uriah had an alibi. Everybody knew where he was. He was at the king's gate, not at his house. So the question then becomes, where did this baby come from? So when they told David, <laughs> David's about to up there. He said, hey, man, uh, Uriah didn't go home last night, David. They came and told David this. Remember, David is toxic, and his toxicity is contaminating other people now. He said, hey, man, um, David, he didn't go home. And, and, and so when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, uh, did you not come from a journey? Why you didn't go to your house, man? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I go to, to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live, speaking of his integrity and his honor, not only for David, but his honor for the other fighting men and his honor for the cause. He says, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So David now is in a tight spot. It says, then David said to Uriah, wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. 
So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next two days. And David is plotting how he's going to cover this thing up. Now when David called him, he ate and he drank before him and he made him drunk. <laughs> and that evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go out to his house. So the second attempt, David said, I'm going to make this guy drunk. He's going to go home. He's going to lie with his wife. And then we're going to say, oh, that's how she got pregnant. But Uriah didn't go down to his house. So in the morning, it happened. There's that phrase again. That David wrote a letter to Joab. <laughs> and sent it. And sent it by the hand of Uriah. Listen to what David's doing now. He writes this letter. And he sends it by the hand of Uriah. Let me tell you what the letter said. This is what the letter say. Y'all ready for this? Ooh, the T. <laughs> the T up in this story. Uh, what, I, what, what verse am I at? Somebody help me. 15. Listen to what the, the letter said. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront <laughs> of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. This is the letter that Uriah is taking to Joab, and that letter is his death sentence, and David put it in his hand. Are y'all with me? So he takes it to the battlefront, and sure enough, sure enough, the men retreat from Uriah, and Uriah is killed. End of story. David gets Bathsheba, Uriah is dead, it's all good. Or is it? Because when you go over to chapter 12 now, <laughs> ooh, the tea. This is juicy. Straight out of TMZ. E News. In chapter 12, listen to this, the baby already born. And there's no evidence, there's no evidence anywhere in the scripture that David even repented. There's no place anywhere between 11 and 12 where David showed any remorse. But how many of you realize that with every cover-up, ultimately there's going to be a confrontation? Are y'all with me? So, so in chapter 12, notice what the scripture says. Chapter 12, the Bible says, Then the Lord sent Nathan, that's the prophet, to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. And he tells this whole story. And he said, The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had brought which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Notice David's hypocrisy. Verse 5. So David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. 
And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Here's the moment of reckoning, verse 7. Then David said, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Now notice, now notice, I'm about to talk about the weight of guilt. David has done the thing. He has been confronted. And now he has to deal with the consequences. Are y'all with me? Are y'all with me? Listen to what the prophet said. Thus saith the Lord, I anointed you king over Israel, and I even delivered you from the hand of Saul. God was saying, David, I've been so good to you. He said, stop for a moment and think about how good I have been to you, David. I gave you your master's house, and I gave you your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. God was saying, David, anything you ever wanted or needed, I would have given you if you had only asked me. Over and above what I had already given you. But then he goes on and says, what verse am I in? I just lost my place. Help me out. Verse 9 says, now therefore, notice what I said, the decisions we make today, Live on after us. Look at verse 9. It says, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Now God is telling him, he's bringing the charges up against David. You have killed Uriah. You're a murderer. And you have taken his wife to be your wife. And you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, consequences, consequences. The sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and you have taken the wife of Uriah to be your wife. Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. You know, I was talking to a guy one time and the guy said, why, why? God ain't fair. I can't believe he judged Saul and didn't do anything to David. I told him, have you ever read 2 Samuel chapter 12? Most people think that God was unfair to Saul because he took the kingdom from him. Notice God's judgment on David. Your own house will turn on each other. The sword will never leave your house. I will take your wives and give them to your neighbor. I'm going somewhere with this as I close. I'm going somewhere with this. And he says... Uh, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. What you thought you were doing in secret, I will expose publicly. But after every confrontation, y'all, here's the next one. Here's the next C. Here's the next C. Here's the next C. If you're willing, there can be confession. Hmm? When God confronts us, God doesn't confront us to destroy us. He confronts us to save us. What Nathan is doing is saving David from himself. Bringing him to a point where he finally recognizes the error of his own ways. 
This is actually, in a lot of ways, the mercy of God. Because David is on a downward spiral. I'm going somewhere with this. I'm going somewhere with this. So David, David confesses his sin. And Nathan said to David, <laughs> listen to this. Listen to this. Verse 13, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. How do I say this, Lord? Let me just read this part of the text and then I'll close with this. However, he said, you're going to live, David. You ain't going to die, but judgment is going to come to your house. The sword will never leave your house. There will be adversity in your house. You'll turn on each other. In fact, David's own son, Absalom, plotted against him. All of this started because he should have been on the battlefield and he decided to stay home and he took Bathsheba and killed Uriah. All of it started with complacency and now David has to deal with a judgment that is generational upon his children. I'm talking about guilt. At some point, David has to say, look at what I did. I already killed a man. I already took his wife. Now my children who have absolutely nothing to do with any of this are going to suffer as a result of it. I'm talking about guilt. That just one night with Bathsheba now has generational consequences. I'm talking about the, the decisions that we just make in our complacency and don't realize the far-reaching effects. So God says you're going to live, but how do I deal with the guilt of the judgment that God has now pronounced over generations? Say you're going to live, but this is what's coming upon your house. This is why I'm going to close, uh, because it gets better. It gets better. It gets better. Uh, it says, verse 14 says, however, because this deed you have, because of this deed, or by this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who is born to you shall surely die. I'm talking about guilt from the north, south, east, and west. He said, this baby that you had with Bathsheba won't live. This baby won't live. I'm talking about guilt, the weight and the pain of guilt, the direct result of your own. Innocent people now are impacted by David's decision. How do you move on from there? Psalm 51, most of you know it, created me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. That is a result of Nathan confronting David. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, all we see is that David said, I have sinned against the Lord, but the entire context of what David said is Psalm 51. In Psalm 51 at verse 7, uh, uh, Psalm 51 and verse 17, David says this, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. This morning, if you're dealing with guilt on any level for anything that you've done, know this, that God will not reject or despise a repentant heart. If you have been carrying the weight of your past, if you have been carrying the weight of shame and guilt, God will not reject 
he will not reject a repentant heart. So everything's about to change. Everything's about to change for the better. Let me tell you this now. Let me fast forward because I need to close. So God says this child ain't going to live. And for seven days, David fasted and he mourned and he begged God and he pleaded with God. And he's like, don't let this child die. In fact, if anyone deserves to die, it should be me. Spare this child. And on the seventh day, the child died. I'm talking about guilt. But I'm going somewhere with it. Because this story has a happy ending. Notice verse 18. It says, then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. This may be too much for David to bear when he hears that the child is dead because of the weight of his guilt. For the first time, David is confronting the damage that he has done. And if we tell him that this child is dead, he might do himself some harm. No, notice, notice verse 19. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said, is the child dead? And they said, Indeed, he is dead. Notice David's response. David immediately fell into a deep depression that lasted for months and lasted for years. Notice David's response. Can we put that on the screen? Next, next verse. Verse 20. Then David got up from the ground washed himself, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. And he went to the tabernacle and worshipped the Lord. Hold up. Your baby just died. This is where your world should fall apart. This is where you're supposed to be rolling on the ground and mourning and talking about how guilty you are for what happened. But after the child died, David got up from his mourning and he went to the house of God and he worshiped. I'm, I'm going to say that again. After the child died, David stopped fasting and mourning. He got up from his place of guilt. He got up from his place of shame. He put on lotion. Come on, somebody. Brute 33 and Old Spice. How many of y'all... Honestly, how many of y'all used to wear Brute? Right there, one hand, one hand, Brute. Old Spice, anybody? A couple of Old Spice. Let me, let, me tell you, let me tell you what's happening here. Let me tell you what's happening here. I want you to, I want you to hear what's happening here. For those of you who have been wrestling with, grappling with the weight of your shame and guilt, God gives you permission to live again, to laugh again, and to love again. Let me, tell, let me tell you what people want you to do. The baby died. Sit there and cry. Sit there and mourn and spend the rest of your life right there. 
I want, I want you, listen, listen to what I'm saying now. Listen to what, when you read the text, the scripture says, God judged David's actions, but God forgave him. For those of us who want to keep people in the prison of their behavior and their actions, God judged his actions, but forgave him. And once God granted David permission, David got up from where he was. It is counterintuitive to worship after your child is dead. But David understood something of the mercy and grace of God. Let me tell you what mercy and grace look like. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. That's mercy. Not getting what we deserve. But the grace of God goes to a whole nother level because the grace of God is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. And this morning, if you've been in a place of guilt and shame, like David, you have been granted permission to get up from where you've been in spite of what you've done and embrace the mercy and the grace of God. Embrace the mercy and grace of God. I promise you this is where I'm going to close. After the confession can come a clear conscience. After the confession can come a clear conscience. 1 John chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, it says, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. I want you to hear that. If you are in a place right now of condemnation, if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. And then verse 21 goes on and says, if our hearts condemn us not, we have confidence toward God. David in his repentance, dealt with the confidence issue, the condemnation issue, and therefore he had confidence toward God to worship again and to move on with his life. Uh, last thing I'm going to say, last thing I'm going to say, huh? and I think it bears repeating, in spite of everything David had done, God granted him permission to live again, to love again, and to laugh again. Uh, here's why. I think David really understood this, and I think it's human nature. People, people will love you based on what they don't know about you. But God loves us in spite of everything he already knows about us. Big difference. You can love me because of what you don't know about me. And standing up here and say, oh, I love Pastor Ray. Pastor Ray, perfect. He can preach. And so I love Pastor Ray because I, you don't know about there's no Bathsheba, by the way. Amen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let me pump the brakes on that. Ain't no Bathsheba lurking nowhere. But most of us love people because of what we don't know about them. But if you only knew, maybe you wouldn't love them as much. God loves us in spite of everything he already knows. And when I understand that, it will remove every issue of condemnation and guilt because if our hearts condemn us not, 
we can have confidence toward God. And you can begin to live with a clear conscience once again, in spite of everything, in spite of everything, no matter what your history is, you can live free from the guilt of it. And this is how I know, and this is where I close. Is that my fourth closing? Verses 24 and 25. Y'all ain't ready for this, man. You, look, check this out. I used to think I knew things about the character and nature of God. But the more I read the Bible and the longer I live, I realize how jacked up my theology was. Notice what the scripture says concerning David. It says, then David comforted Bathsheba, <laughs> his wife, and got his swerve on. Y'all see that? Right after the baby died, he comforted his wife because he had reconciled with God. And he refused to live in the place of guilt any longer. I hope you all hear this. Look, most people will say, man, you're supposed to be crying for that baby. Notice what David said. It's David said, this child can't come to me, but I will go to him. And while I'm here on this earth, I'm going to live again, love again, and laugh again. And he went, he went into Bathsheba, comforted her, and slept with her. Woo! Fertile myrtle. She became pregnant. <laughs> David was a one-shot wonder. And they gave birth to a son, and guess who? Who their son was? Solomon, the wisest king who ever lived. Now, 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 I don't just want to stop there because God is all up in this mess. We say, can anything good come out of that nonsense? And we judge people when we see them move on and they're laughing and they're happy and they're on Instagram and tweeting and we get mad. They've made their peace with God. Notice, notice, they have a baby named Solomon. But notice, notice what God said about this now. This thing that started out so wrong. This thing that started out so poorly. This thing that started out so selfishly. Notice what the scripture says. The Lord loved the child. Hold up. David married Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. They had a second child, and God loves that child. Most of us would put a wicked, evil B word on that child. That's what most of us Christian folk would do. Most of us would treat that child differently, despise that child. But God loved that child that came out of a union that started out so wrong. And it said, love the child. And then he sent the prophet back. And he says, through the prophet, that they should name him Jedediah, which means beloved of the Lord. God said, David, Bathsheba, even though this thing started out on the wrong foot, I can show you my favor in the place of your greatest failure. Oh, y'all missed that. Let me tell you why we missed that. Because our human nature is to continue to condemn them, continue to despise them. And God said, even in the place of your greatest failure, I can still show you my favor. Last statement I'm going to make. Last statement I'm going to make. 
the antidote for guilt has, is, and always will be the grace of God. The antidote for guilt. The antidote for guilt has, is, and always will be the grace of God because it is greater than you and I could ever. Let me tell you something about the grace. It's greater than you and I could imagine. It's greater than you and I can imagine because you and I never would have thought that God would put his hand of blessing on a David and a Bathsheba and a Solomon. Yet it is a demonstration of the grace of God. It is greater than we imagine and so much more. The grace of God is so much more than we deserve. And what I discovered as I read this story is this story ultimately ain't about David and Bathsheba. Ultimately, it is about the grace of God. For each of us to recognize in this room today that the grace of God is greater than the pain of your guilt. This is a story not about David and Bathsheba and Uriah, but a God who forgives and is able to show us favor even in the place of our failure. And so if you're here this morning, I'll ask the worship team to come. If you're here this morning, I want to pray as we close. If you're here this morning, and you're wrestling with, grappling with guilt and shame. In fact, every head bowed, every eye closed. I want to pray for you.